0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ruth Aylott and Patricia Vargas about uh, their new book, living with robots, what every anxious human needs to know, the truth about robots. Two experts look beyond the hype, offering a lively and accessible guide to what robots can and can't do. There's a lot of hype about robots. Some of it is scary and some of it is utopian. In this accessible book, two robotics experts reveal the truth about what robots can and can't do, how they work and what we can reasonably expect Uh, their future capabilities to be. It will not only make you think differently about the capabilities of robots, it will make you think differently about the capabilities of humans. Living with robots equips readers to look at robots concretely as human-made artifacts rather than placeholders for our anxieties. Well, Ruth, Patricia, welcome to the show. Great to be here.
0: Amazing to be here, Nalina.
1: No, it's great to have you. Okay, so as we have gone through the unprecedented times of the global, global pandemic uh, this uh, last year, I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit, how has it affected you and your work? And maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered uh, for yourself uh, from this experience.
2: I think Patricia would agree that work in human robot interaction, which is a field we're both involved in, has been very badly impacted. And that, of course, is because you need humans interacting with robots. And um, we cannot run face to face experiments um, during a pandemic. So I think most projects have been very badly impacted, mine included. Obviously, we use our creative abilities to try and work around the problem. And in this case, many of us have gone for video experiments. We film the robot doing something and then online we ask people to comment on it. It's not as good as a proper experiment, but it's better than not being able to do anything at all. So I think the takeaway for me is it's good if you have infrastructure in place, which allows you to do that fairly seamlessly without thrashing around which, of course, we didn't, because we didn't expect it.
0: Yeah, for me... Tricia, do you want to uh, add? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was just like to to, uh, share the frustration of my students and researchers as well. And it was really hard when the pandemic hit us. Um, We had a lot of students finishing their uh, PhD time, and they needed to do experiments with the robots. And usually, as Rube said, we we have... um, to recruit participants and of course you couldn't do that so (laughs) we had to work around this um, using simulation and sometimes video interviews it was it was a nightmare to be honest but um, well we had to deal with that and it was really hard it was really complicated times
1: yeah for sure it was uh, very difficult for many of us And I was wondering, uh, uh, what about yourself? How did you cope? Did you manage to pick up new hobbies or ways uh, to sort of relax?
2: Well, I I think I was very lucky. Um, I was actually on a travel grant in France when the lockdown occurred. And I spent the first three months in France, mostly staying with one of my children. Um, And we managed to continue the work I was doing there using online facilities um, since then, well, I think most people would say if you're living on your own, it's a slightly lonely existence. Lots of healthy outdoor exercise. And in Scotland, believe me, it's healthy. You certainly want your Mm-mm. waterproof sometimes when you go out for your one hour walk around the neighbourhood. So yeah, I mean, I've been lucky. I'm, I'm not going to knock it at all. i have been much, much luckier than most people. How about you, Patricia?
0: Well, in my case, I, I could say almost almost the same. Uh, my partner is a physical educator, so the classes start being done in my house online, on <laughs> the living room. So I start following that. So I became fitter as a process. And in terms of work, well, we had to deal with this um, completely lockdown, and we had to do everything was online. And I think what I I appreciated that we could do much more um, uh, meetings because they were like kind of back to back. You don't have to move between rooms. You don't have to travel to the university. So the traveling aspect was gone. So we could condensate our um, working uh, tasks uh, more efficiently, I would say.
1: Oh, that's great to hear.
0: So both of you
1: are in this really fascinating field of robotics. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about yourselves, more about your background and how you got there. And we'll start with Ruth.
2: So my father worked in the computer industry when it was just beginning. He worked for what was a British computer company called International Computers. So advanced technology was in my house and when I was a teenager um, I drew on his uh, interests and excitements, I think, with the field and became very interested in it myself and wanted to work in that field. So, after I'd been to university, admittedly, I did an entirely unrelated degree in economics, um, I went to work for the computer company and I got into computing. And thereafter, um, eventually, having done AI work, I went to work for what was then a National Robotics Centre at the University of Salford near Manchester. And this was, what, in 1990 or so. And yeah, I was very interested in the field. I did the AI AI end of robotics. I then went into the university, did a robotics project, and I've been enjoying myself in robotics ever since. It's it's great, it's an absolutely fascinating field. Um, And along the way, I came across Patricia and we became colleagues. So Patricia was already doing robotics when I met her. That's true
0: Ruth. So in my case, um, I started being interested in robots um, when I was nine years old, (laughs) when Mm. I saw Star Wars, the first movie. So I remember I couldn't even get to the cinema because I was 12 years old and my mom had to come inside the cinema with me and she left me there because she was not interested at all. So I fell in love with C-3PO and R2D2, and I thought, I want to do robots. I want to make robots. <laughs> so since <laughs> then, I, I think that I kept that in my mind throughout my, my career. Um, in the city where I was born, there was no um, computer science degree at that time. That's all engineering degrees. So I started doing electrical engineering. Then uh, halfway, I found out that in a city nearby, there was computer science, the first the first uh, um, courses were offered, so I moved there. So then I did my computer science degree. Then I did my master's. And uh, then was robotics involved already. And then in P- my PhD as well. Um, I had contact with the first real robots, the really small capital robots at that time. And as you can imagine, I was in Brazil, so uh, robotics was still, well, is still um, in its uh, infancy, so I had uh, trouble finding uh, places to work um, on the field, so I decided to move abroad. That's when I met Ruth, when I moved to Hediot-Walt, and we started working together. And since then, my passion is just growing, growing ever since.
1: So once you started in the robotics field, uh, how was the community inside it? Did you have any uh, colleagues or mentors that uh, supported and inspired you along the way?
0: Yeah, so when I, um, when I moved to to, to, um, to UK, uh, my first contact with, um, with people in, in, in England, and then I moved to, to Scotland when I started working and headed what? Watt. That's when I met Ruth, and I can say that Ruth was one of my mentors. She might not agree with that, but she was one of my mentors. I always look up for her, and um, of course, we have a lot of. Uh, I have a lot of role models around the world that I always look look for, and um, in terms of uh, following their paths and their passion and their um, their dedication to the field. Mm.
2: Well, I've never felt much like a mentor, I must say. So it's very nice of you to say that, Patricia. Um, When I came into the field, the robotics end of robotics, what I call the engineering end of robotics, was very much a male preserve. So I'd go to a robotics conference and there'd be several hundred people and there'd be me and one other woman, typically. That changed very much as uh, the human-robot interaction, social robotics thread became developed uh, social robotics is the idea that we try and put robots into everyday human environments rather than in factories that are wholly engineered around them. And that has attracted many more women into the field. I think one of the most inspiring people for me was a colleague, Kirsten Doutenhahn, who was at that point at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK and is now working in Waterloo in Canada, um, who was very much a pioneer of that field and had uh, wonderful ideas um, she was the first person, incidentally, if you've heard of the Uncanny Valley, I think she was the first person who pro- who propagated the concept of the Uncanny Valley, the idea that robots that look almost like humans tend to scare people a bit. Um, I think she was the first person who popularised that idea, originally a Japanese one, in the UK. So she was very much a pioneer and she wrote a lot of seminal papers. And I was very fortunate to work in projects with her, So, yes, I think she was a great inspiration to me.
1: So your passions for robotics, whether it's from your family when you were younger or like a gateway of Star Wars into the field, uh, really culminated in the the book, your latest book, Living with Robots. So can you tell me what is uh, what is the book about and how you come to writing it now?
2: So the title of the book is is A Good Encapsulation, uh, Living with Robots. This, as I said, is the social robot idea that robots will become part of everyday human environments at some point. And the second part of the title, What Every Anxious Human Needs to Know, there's a lot of anxiety about robotics, almost panic in some circles, And I think we were both very concerned about this because we felt that it was founded on unrealistic ideas about robots and their capacities. Um, A lot of them, yes, taken from films like Star Wars. You do know, of course, that there were people inside C-3PO and R2-D2. They weren't autonomous robots. And there are no autonomous robots that could function like those two in Star Wars. Indeed, no film has ever used real robots because they're too unreliable, um, they're too, they are too—they lack function, they're not flexible enough. So we wanted, on the one hand, to inject a touch of realism and understanding about robots, and on the other hand, to show in what areas robots really are useful, and also the much smaller number of areas in which you really should be worried about robots, of which I think autonomous weapons is probably the leading example. Um, So I think we're trying to ground people and give them a real honest appreciation of what's good, what's bad, what they can do, what they can't do, what you should expect. And the interest and fascination of trying to get robots to pick up even a small fraction of the abilities of living things like ourselves. I don't know if you want to add to that, Patricia. Patricia.
0: I think you summarized it really well, Ruth. Um, I believe that um, the book came to demystify what people see robots are today. I think the media is a little bit responsible for all the big, uh, the huge hype on robots and what robots can do and artificial intelligence and all this. And I think uh, the book came, um, our deal was to, to demystify this. And I believe that um, we, we kind of achieved our, our, our goal, and I hope people agree with us. And uh, also, we don't want people to stop doing robotics. It's all the way around. I just want uh, we, we want people to understand what robots are capable of, like Ruth said. And um, we show uh, in the book like uh, many ideas on how we could move forward and make robots do the right thing and do good to us.
1: Excellent. So your book uh, really beautifully marries these two parts, the science and society. So let's start exploring uh, the science part a little bit um, uh, to begin with. So what exactly is a robot? What does that uh, mean? And what is this word?
2: Well, we look at that quite early on in the book, of course. One of the things we notice is that people use the term robot in popular conversation to mean things that are really not robots at all. So the government talks about robots to assess people for benefits, by which they mean pieces of software on the internet. Those are not robots, okay? Mm. So we put forward a definition which sounds kind of highfalutin, but I'll explain it, which is um, they're embodied agents with autonomy. So embodied means robots do have physical bodies, pieces of metal normally, which allow them to act in the real world and move around in the real world, as well as sensors, which give them some information, not a lot, you might say sometimes, about what's happening around them. Um, The agent idea is the idea of being able to act in an autonomous fashion or a semi-autonomous fashion. To be right, even humans are not wholly autonomous. Most of us cannot do just what we like, we're subject to social pressures, we're subject to our limited abilities and so on. Uh, Robots, of course, have limited abilities too. The idea of the autonomy, though, is that they can come up with an objective and then act to try to reach that objective without people having to intervene um, to turn their motors and work their sensors. Mm. There's actually a lot of that going on. A lot of robots you see in videos, for instance, doing wonderful things are actually being what we would call teleoperated, operated which means that there's a person off-camera with a controller who's actually controlling the robot. So it's not being nearly as clever as it looks because it's quite difficult to make an autonomous robot. So I think those are the main threads of the definition. I don't know if I've missed anything out there, Patricia.
0: No, I believe everything is correct. One thing that you mentioned that um, it's, it's important is that sometimes you have... Um, you have, like we've said lately, we have a lot of nice videos showing the internet. And um, some robots are doing um, kind of uh, autonomous uh, behaviors, but you don't know what is what has happened before that. So many videos were taken before that nice video is up there. So it's really hard to make a robot do anything. That's what I wanted to point out.
1: This is fascinating. And uh, I suppose sometimes it's really hard to know, isn't it, when the robots are being manipulated more like puppets, or at least some part of them are being manipulated uh, uh, in this way?
2: Yes, there's quite a lot of that going on, because it makes such good marketing copy for companies. Mm. So there was a recent, well, last few years, we mentioned in the book um, episode, where it was said by a UK university that, their robot was going to give evidence to a parliamentary commission on AI. And they got a lot of publicity for this. The press loved the story. What actually happened was that the robot was pre-programmed with answers to specified questions. It was taken to the meeting. People there asked the specified questions. Essentially, a button was pressed and the robot gave the specified answers. This was no more than a recording recording. In other words, it was acting like a mobile, well, MP3 recorder, something like (laughs) this. But it served its purpose in marketing terms. I have to say that this is not uncommon. Um, The so-called robot artist, ADAR, very similar, very limited capacities. Um, The robot Sophia, which is well known in marketing circles, again is almost certainly teleoperated in most of its limited interviews. It's a lovely piece of engineering. It looks very human. You can feel the interviewers being sucked into it if you like, but it isn't an autonomous robot. So the marketing aspect of robotics for companies does lead them to mislead, I feel, um, because they they like the idea of the reflected glory of a wonderful robot even when their robot is really just acting like a giant puppet.
1: This somewhat reminds me of the Mechanical Turk of the very, very early days. But I was wondering, uh, can, you, uh, can you describe how was the actual real uh, robotics uh, field in the very early days and what kind of robots uh, uh, there were?
2: Do you want to say something
1: about factory robots, Patricia?
0: Yeah, so basically, um, the first time we had come in contact, well, humans had come in contact with robots, they are called what they call industrial robots. So robots were brought into industry as like a revolutionary uh, piece of machinery. And of course, the first um, the first um, reaction from, uh, from the population, from people was that they would take our jobs and things like that. But Leslie, that for... Or further on in our discussion the point is that uh, those robots were brought into into the um, environment the industry environment however there were no um, well, theres there was supposed to be no, no contact between the robot and the humans because the robots were a big massive junk uh, piece of metal and um, they were autonomously doing something that were predefined movements. And there were no sensei on the robots. So usually the robots were in cages. So no human beings should be near them when they're turned on. And uh, this is something that um, we discussed in the book. And it was the cause one of the first um, deaths caused by robots. happened exactly with an industrial robots. So robots came into our lives this way. And it was not nice, <laughs> as you might mm. say. But then, of course, we started investigating how robots could become Uh, more uh, useful in terms of adding sensors and better actuators and um, better um, interaction with humans because if you want robots to live with us we need them to be able to interact with human beings of course.
2: I think it's worth pointing out that 90% it is reckoned of the cost of installing industrial robots is engineering the factory around them. They lack flexibility, they're very rigid only the very more recent ones have any sensors on them. And as a result, everything has to be just in place for them to function at all. The whole environment has to be engineered around them. They're very, very rigid. Of course, they don't get tired. They do the same task without getting bored. They are big lumps of machinery, industrial machinery, like a lathe or something like this, big robot arms. And... You could say that that rigidity, that inflexibility is still something we're working on, even with more modern robots with sensors, and that the problems of dealing with a changing environment are far from solved with robots. So those factory robots succeeded because their, their environment really didn't change. Most of our environments change all the time. Well, they have humans wandering around with them for a start. Yeah. so. The whole issue of putting robots in ordinary environments is how far can we get them to deal with the changeability, the flexibility, the unexpectedness of Mm. real environments, which is what living things are so good at. You see this with uh, self-driving cars. Uh, There was a a big surge of optimism, self-driving cars here tomorrow. And then they discovered, not to the surprise of researchers, I may add, that actually the environment for a car is a lot less predictable than people had assumed and if you get it wrong you can end up killing someone and various people have actually died as a result of accidents with self-driving cars it's just not easy the original robots worked fine in that niche and we can still put robots into niches like that if we can engineer the niche to be reasonably predictable a bit less predictable than a factory but reasonably predictable Robots can be really, really useful, but in the big wide world, unsolved problem just yet.
1: So how did the field start progressing from uh, this mostly utilitarian use of the robots towards more social robots that can be somehow responsive uh, to the unpredictability of the real world?
2: I think people started to find applications in which they could be useful. Um, this is still very much a novelty. Uh, marrying useful function with social capability still not really a solved problem. So a lot of social robot companies have tried to produce stuff and then gone out of business because their robots are not useful enough But if you look at specific niches that people have looked at, lots of research work, for instance, on using robots to interact with children with autism. Uh, Children with autism find humans overstimulating, it's thought. Robots, because they're much less expressive, are much less Mm -hmm. stressful um, to interact with. And quite a lot of work has been carried out, not yet actually deployed, specific tasks, so little tiny service robots, the um, the little vacuum cleaner robots that people have in their house. Not not at all clever, but they if you leave them at night, they'll bash themselves around the floor of your house and vacuum stuff up. Just don't leave any bits and pieces lying around or they'll get vacuumed up as well. Do not have a dog. That doesn't do its business where it should because that can be distributed around your flat. That's has happened. Um, oh dear. <laughs> robots. Yes, oh dear is the word for it. We, we discussed this in, in the book. Um, someone called it the poop, 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 I can't pronounce the word, apocalyptics, a something like that. Some poor guy had this happen to him. Apparently it's not that uncommon. Um, <laughs> he said it was like a Jackson Pollock in dog poo when he came down the next morning. Uh, Grass-cutting robots, so again, they do a simple thing in a defined area and they do it very well. Um, They're not ground staff. They don't do all the other tasks, but they will cut the grass. So little pieces of function like that are where social robots are beginning to come in. So actual deployment is still largely in areas where there's not too much change. Um, Automated agricultural machinery in very, very large fields, like in Australia, Australia. Or in the Midwest in the US, um, you can drive these by um, taking the the position from satellites, um, which allows it to navigate. And all it has to do is to cover the fields, which is usually like miles in either direction, many kilometres by many kilometres fields. So that's one area. Automated mining machinery. Um, although some of these are teleoperated, in fact, but some of the Australian mines have no people there at all, and they have giant mining machines that uh, take the ore from hoppers, from automatic mining, and take them off to the transport network, dump them into train carriages, which, uh, which then drive off. So th- these sorts of large-scale applications are certainly feasible. Um, autonomous, short-distance usually trains... So the Light Dock Railway in London, which was designed to be an autonomous system, uh, works very well. It doesn't go into tunnels where I think that might be quite dangerous, uh, but that works mm. quite well. And you can think of that as a robot. And, of course, in military usage, um, people don't often realise that the cruise missile, very famous piece of equipment, is actually a robot. At the moment, it navigates autonomously using a map. Indeed, in its early versions... It was a bit fallible because snow could completely disrupt its navigation when the land looked different. Now it navigates very well autonomously. It still requires permission to actually attack the target when it gets there, and it's given the target by a human. Uh, The real worry is that that's one step from autonomously deciding what to blow up. And the idea of having drones that could fly around the city and then, ah, there's someone we don't like, let's drop a bomb on them, that is kind of an alarming idea and it's not beyond the bounds of technological feasibility because blowing things up is really quite simple. It's a lot easier than loading a dishwasher is.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure and uh, those are some really excellent examples of uh, using robots uh, here on earth so i was wondering if you have ideas of how we can use them for space exploration or something beyond earth and especially at the worlds where we don't really know what to expect and
0: um, maybe i can i can try to to have a shot at that one ruth is that okay yeah sure <laughs> so yeah one one um <laughs> one robot that caught a lot um, of my attention was the, the sphere that they sent to the space station. I don't know if you know, but the, the sphere was a robot and it looked like a sphere. So it was floating around the space station, but they tried to give it emotion and um, kind of ability between codes of uh, detecting emotion on the, the crewmates. So it was at the beginning um, it was okay. But as, as you imagine in the long-term scenario, always, we always need to think about that. We develop robots for the short term, they work okay. But in the long term, things don't usually work okay. So in the long term, uh, they start having kind of, uh, we can say, arguments with the crewmate because they were inferring the robot. the sphere was inferring that one of the the crew that he was, um, or he, see, I'm, I'm calling the robot here already. <laughs> 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 the, the crew that, he, that it was um, um, interacting with, uh, he inferred that the, the person was having a certain kind of emotion and the person wasn't having that emotion. There was a kind of an argument between the both of them. So to see how complicated things are. But of course, uh, there are space, I used to say, you can apply robotics to anything. Uh, there's no there, there are no limits, but you need to be careful what you are uh, developing. And like Ruth said, the ethical part of it should be taken into account all the time. And we cannot blame machines for doing mistakes. We can blame the creator of the machines for doing mistakes. And this is a very important aspect. And we mentioned some, um, some efforts that have been doing. they're being done and we're going on as we speak. And the word in our book and um, these are very welcome um, um, and very welcome um, initiatives that they are coming and um, we need to keep an eye on that so definitely yeah we can apply robots to everything and anywhere
2: it is true though that um, planetary rovers is very much an area that people have, have worked on in robotics now you'd think that would be ideal for robots But people who manage space operations are very cautious about robotic technology. You think about it like this. How many millions, if not billions, of currency units does it take to ship something? Well, to the moon is expensive, to Mars, extremely expensive. What Mm -hmm. happens if something goes wrong and the robot wrecks itself or wrecks some other part of your machinery. Nobody's going to be able to put it right very easily. So naturally, people are very, very cautious about the amount of autonomy they put into planetary rovers currently. Nevertheless, they have to have some autonomy when they're on distant planets like Mars because it takes 20 minutes for a signal to get to Mars and 20 minutes for the signal to get back from Mars. So you really can't teleoperate it. So what happens with Mars rovers is they get instructions, they carry out the instructions. If anything looks wrong, in other words, it doesn't pan out the way they expected, then they just stop and they send a signal which says, this didn't happen or that did happen. I've stopped, send me more instructions. And then they just wait until they get more instructions, which could be the next day because the signals not only take 20 minutes, they have to be relayed via an orbiting spaceship, which only comes around once a day. So it's quite difficult. But it is an area in which robotic technology is gradually being applied. And that's true also with um, ships that are actually landing on asteroids and things like that. So autonomous mining on an asteroid or on a comet to find out what it's made of, that's robotic technology as well. But you'd be a long way from something like uh, Star Wars technology, even imagined technology in Star Wars with these robots. They really are machinery with just a little bit of autonomy to allow them to do their job better because of the problems, if anything were to go wrong. And I'd agree with Patricia, incidentally, that, uh, I mean, luckily the ethical issues are rather absent in space technology. The ethical issues she mentions are definitely to the forefront When we're talking about applying this technology in our own environments here on Earth,
1: and I think this uh, leads us nicely to the uh, more society part about uh, with of the humans and robots. So I would like to ask, why do you think we're so captivated and fascinated by robots? Not just by their mechanics, but also there's just something about them.
2: (laughs) Well, we respond very acutely to anything that looks even slightly human. That's something that's wired into us. And if you look back in human history, we're also very interested in giving things causal mechanism, intentions. We, we give intentions to things we know don't have intentions. So the sign above the photocopier, which I've seen, which says, don't let this machine know you're in a hurry. The idea being, if it if you if it does, it will jam specifically to annoy you. Um, we used to have spirits of the springs and of the trees and of mountains. We used to have gods sitting behind the weather. We look for intentionality everywhere, and if something looks a little bit human and moves in a way that suggests living things, we immediately start giving it intentionality, even when it doesn't have any. So it's a human characteristic that allows us, between humans, to judge what people are up to, basically. What are they doing? How does it impact me? It's what we call a theory of mind. They think like I do, so I can predict what they're going to do. We tend to apply that to robots, even though robots don't have minds, as we do to many other things. So that, that's one aspect. And I think the second aspect, the fear aspect, is very much a Western phenomenon. So in Japan, people are not scared of robots in the way we are. They don't have what we would call the Frankenstein complex, that technology is going to get out of control and turn on us. Um, I think this is very much to do with our cultural history, going back to the ancient Greeks, the idea of challenging the gods being hubris and bad things will happen if you get, get outside your own powers. Um, and that has gone into other religions um, in the West as well your God is a jealous God, the sin of pride, don't try to do things that only God is responsible for, and the idea that technology, and particularly robots, might be just that and get out of control. So that's what I think, anyway. I don't know, what do you feel about that, Patricia?
0: Yeah, Ruth, I think you described it really well. Um, I believe that um, we have, well, not not myself and Ruth, maybe I may can talk for Ruth in that regard. It's some so we, we told some researchers that, want to play godlike so they have in their mind that they really want to create an intelligent being and when you say intelligent being you associate with uh, a human, uh, human appearance and then you have all this fascination coming from a robot if a robot um, has um, human appearance it would be more captivating than uh, a robot that just look like a robot itself like a uh, metal and plastic um, uh, material or, or device or machine. So I think that the fascination comes from uh, the fact that um, some, some of us believe that we can create an intelligent being, create a, a robot that could uh, be like us or even be our companions or even be our friends. And uh, this fascination comes from that. And of course, this there is this, uh, what Roofs talked about, the the intention and mm. other aspects of the robot's behavior that it can be, like Roof's explained as well, really well. We call it the Wizard of Oz when somebody's behind creating all those um, face expressions and even the answers and and um, behaviours of the robot that m- makes you think when you don't know what's going on behind, that they are really, oh, they're so similar to us. They're so intelligent. And I think that's the, the fascination come from that. It's like creating something that is similar to us and could be our friends and companions one day. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And the thing that you mentioned about... Uh the specific types of robots, so maybe human shape or something that moves independently, that we somehow try and put the theory of mind into the robot. So does it work with other types, like like your Roomba? Can you have an argument with the Roomba?
2: Well, it's certainly true that people personalise their Roombas. Um, then again, people personalise their cars as well, <laughs> give them hmm. paint jobs and put eyes on the front and give them names. Um, we're very prone to doing this. Yes, some people do personalise their Roombas and They give them transfers and colours and they give them a name and so on. Um, we're very prone to doing this. I mean, children do this with their toys. Um, they ascribe personality to their soft toys and their dolls and so on. It's a basic human characteristic to do this, and I think it's invoked by movement as much as anything. So the rumbar being a moving thing, we feel that, you know, it's moving intentionally, though in fact it's actually moving fairly randomly. <laughs> there isn't much intelligence in a Roomba. Um, But you can't really stop people doing this. This is one of the issues. We know this. Um, people have been fascinated with autonomous movement way, way back. So you go back to the ancient Greeks and they talk about moving statues. Uh, we start, in fact, with the whole idea of the, uh, the statue that comes to life, which is one of the, the famous stories of the ancient Greeks, uh, Galatea, um, that came to life and became, well, I think wife is perhaps too, uh, too strong a word, became the partner at least of the sculptor who designed it because the god breathed divine stuff into it and brought it to life. So this idea that something that looks human, there's some essence you could breathe into it, and suddenly it would become human. That goes back a long way. Then it was the gods who would sort of puff the divine stuff in. Now, I'm afraid people think AI is the divine stuff. We give the robot hmm. AI and suddenly it becomes a person. Um, but I'm afraid the AI is about as close to reality as the little puff of divine breath from Aphrodite, which was what put the original statue into motion.
0: Yeah, I believe that um, one interesting point that Galina mentioned, and I think your question was uh, if we could argue with uh, Roomba, have an argument, yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, this brings brings to another uh, very important aspect of uh, human-robot interaction, which is natural language processing. And it's very important that, of course, for um, being to be uh, deemed intelligent, we expect it to be able to talk and communicate with you. As you might appreciate, robots are far away still from there. You can tell from Siri <laughs> and Alexa; they are getting there, but you know they're still far away from this. And some researchers are like we mentioned. We mentioned that on our book as well. Some researchers are trying to create uh, what we call chatbots. So they are a piece of software. They are not robots, but they are a piece of software that try to interact with people, and sometimes by text message or um, sometimes we are talking or using natural language processing, but um, some, there are some examples of uh, really bad experiences, experiments that happened. And mm-hmm. when you try to create this chatbot, and uh, Ty is one, Ty from, from Microsoft is one, was one example where the chatbot was had to be turned off, I think it was 16 hours after it was turned on on Twitter. So we need to be careful, like going back to the ethics part and can we argue with Roomba? No, Roomba, we can argue with Roomba because Roomba doesn't have natural language processing ability. But if a robot has that, still we are far away from what is ideal. Yes, I think the problem with natural language, I mean, we talk about all of these technologies
2: in the book and we try to, as I said, give an idea of what it can do and what it can't do. People feel with a chatbot that the chatbot understands in some sense what they're saying, but that isn't how a chatbot works, mostly. Uh, chatbots normally have a huge database behind them of earlier conversations, and they use statistics to decide what would be a good response to what you've just said. So they look for something that looks like what you just said, and they look to see what a good response was to that, and then they use that. They can learn this over many millions of interactions. So if you look at Alexa and so on, um, they have a centralized database of interactions, which is why there's a privacy issue, and they learn from that to try and respond better. But there is no understanding. It's not that the chatbot understands in any sense what anyone has said to them. There's no human there. There's nothing inside. There's a statistical mechanism which can give you the illusion that it's in conversation with you, but it's not actually like a human conversation at all. So you could perhaps render some kind of argument, but it would soon get out of control. And indeed, people who work in this field and are trying to produce more conversational Alexas have discovered that it's very difficult to keep a conversation going for any length of time. There's a big competition, which some of our colleagues are involved in and have done very well in, uh, but i think the longest sustained conversation anyone has managed with an alexa is about 9 minutes and that's just on you know a variety of topics it's nothing deep nothing complicated so conversation and interaction by language is really very very sophisticated and um, one of the things that humans do and other animals don't do so much of And we don't understand how to do it. And if you don't understand how to do it, you can't engineer it properly. We can make it look as if we're having a conversation, but there's nothing inside. There's no real understanding there at all.
1: So why do we get anxious about some of the robots? Why do they bring such strong emotions in us?
2: I I think it is this inferring abilities. Uh, We infer motivations. So one of the stories we tell in the book, the book has a lot of stories in it, because stories are a very interesting way of learning, we believe, um, of someone who was working with a robot on a joint task. The robot was bringing things and they were stacking them. And at some point, the person doing the stacking said something to the robot, which just turned around and rolled away. That was because the robot hadn't processed what they said. Not a surprise if you do this kind of thing. The person interpreted that as the robot being rude. Mm. Oh, I don't notice of what I said. It was a rude robot. Yeah? That's an example of our imp- implying intentionality, assuming intentionality, where there actually isn't any intentionality at all. That was just how the robot behaved. Now, humans don't always behave well to other humans. This comes as news to nobody, does it? Yeah? So at one point in our history, people from the next village were our enemies. We're still very bad at dealing with people who look different from us, talk differently from us, have different cultural customs than us. We're inclined to think we're the goodies. We do it right. They're the baddies. And we're also very inclined to think, well, they want what we've got. They're going to come and grab our stuff. Um, and our history shows all too many examples of that happening, mostly Europeans going and grabbing other people's stuff, in fact, and enslaving them. So with all that history behind us, is it a surprise that people can infer bad intentions in robots? I don't think it is.
0: Definitely, Ruth. I believe that um, the fear comes from this unknown so people really don't know what goes behind what uh, real robots can do. So that's the idea that we had that we could try to explain. During the book, um, we talked about appearance, movement, senses, and how robots can touch and handle, how robots can deal with emotions, uh, the topics we just speak about, speech, language, and ethics. I think if we demystify this and show people what real, real robots are now, how they look like, and how hard it is to um, create a robot that would, <laughs> what people usually say, take over the world, and maybe mm. people get that less anxious. And one very simple example is that uh, if you can imagine, Today, one of the biggest uh, bottlenecks for us roboticists is the battery. So our robot's battery lasts really, lo- re- really, really uh, a few hours, sometimes minutes. So if a robot wants to take over the world, it needs to carry a very long <laughs> connection mm-hmm. to the next, <laughs> to to the next power source. If you understand what I mean. So. Yeah, preferably no stairs. Because robot mobility
2: is so inferior to human mobility, it's no accident that the robots we deploy normally roll around on wheels or on four legs, okay? Two-legged locomotion, well, it's controlled falling. In the case of a robot, not very controlled falling if we're unlucky. And as they're very large pieces of metal, you don't want them falling on people. So actually having robots that walk around, which looks so simple in films, Um, is really extraordinarily difficult. Nevertheless, in trying to get robots to walk, as we say in the book, we've learned enough about walking to apply some of the technology to prosthetics for humans. So actually, robotics has been extraordinarily useful for better prosthetics, both the legs, artificial legs, and also artificial arms. They're much simpler than the human um, comparisons. They're not as functional as the normal leg or the normal arm and hands would be but they're a good deal better than what had been around up to now so though we can't get robots to walk at all reliably even now never mind climb stairs at all reliably we can apply that technology to other fields and be really helpful to people who've lost limbs
0: yeah I think I think that's a really important aspect of our book as well is that um, we don't just talk bad about robots. We show that the robotics research that we we carry on um, could help other fields of research can inform and be informed by other fields of research. Um, another nice example is what we call neuro-robotics. So neuro robotics is a kind of a newer field. In the robotics, where you have, um, you try to mimic some parts of the brain uh, in uh, computer software. So you create artificial neural networks, you create artificial uh, endocrine systems, artificial immune systems, and then you try to embed that in um, in the robot brain, if I may call it this, and then you embody this system and the robot, mm. and the robot uh, does uh, some tasks, and then we can observe um, what changes in some uh, artificial neurons could happen, what if we change some parts, um, some simulations in parts of the artificial brain of the robot, what happens with the movements, for instance. And this is uh, very interesting when you're trying to understand the Parkinson's disease, for example.
2: Because, of course, the human brain is is not all that observable. We can't see exactly what's going on. We can put a cap on people and see what the major systems are doing. But we can't, at the moment, see what the neurons do when people are doing things. With a, a model like Patricia is suggesting and a robot, we can get more insight about how human brains work. And then for diseases of the brain, like Parkinson's disease, that can give us ideas about what the actual problem might be and therefore eventually could lead to new treatments. So I think Patricia's made a really important point there about the way in which robotics
1: can assist other fields. Those are really fascinating high-tech applications you described, but I also love your low-tech solution against the robots uh, taking over the world. Just put some electric outlets on the top of the stairs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed.
1: So what discoveries along your journey to writing, living with robots uh, surprised you the most?
2: Well, I, th- I think... The number of misconceptions and the number of people who have misconceptions are not just members of the general public, surprised me. So Hmm. people you would feel would be more au fait with what robots can and cannot do. uh, Philosophers, for instance, um, lawyers, sometimes say, well, you know, let's assume the robot works like a human should it have rights. And we roboticists are going, hang on a moment, (laughs) We have machinery here that functions up to a point in a useful way that is like a million miles from the capability of any living thing, has no intentionality, is programmed, and you're asking if it should have rights. Um, your washing machine doesn't have rights. Your machine lathe in the factory doesn't have rights. This is just another lump of machinery. But that's not how the philosopher saw it. And the same would be true of lawyers, and the same is true, unfortunately, of policymakers. And um, policymakers have a real impact on the world. And if they have misapprehensions about robots, that could feed into policy, and that could be, you know, pretty, pretty unfortunate. Um, and then I hadn't realised quite how close we were to automated weapons <laughs> until I started looking at this either. And I think that's quite a serious threat. Um, so, yes, there were things along the way that certainly surprised me.
0: Yeah, I think one one example of that, Rufi, you, you just mentioned is the giving Sophia citizenship. That was a wow. <laughs> I was yes. expecting that. Well, it was a marketing thing, of course,
2: as I, I said before. Um, but, you know, in a country, Saudi Arabia, which doesn't give citizenship to... Many of the people who are working there. It doesn't give citizenship to immigrants. Um, to give citizenship to a machine, largely teleoperated because it has a human face. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise.
0: Definitely, and this I think leads to what you mentioned about um, when somebody said, "Well, a robot has a citizenship," so it brings the the idea of should the robot have rights? Like you mentioned, should the robot have? Uh, moral duties and uh, be ethically uh, scrutinized and things like that so all this um, how can how can we say um, small decisions uh, that can bring like huge impact in our society in my in my opinion
2: yes yeah and it, it is people making decisions who do not understand the limitations of robots they should read our book. <laughs> This, this would help them a lot. And indeed, that is one of the reasons we wrote the book, because we want people to understand what is good, what is bad, what can be done, what can't be done, and not to react in that mystified fashion because it moves as if it might be alive and it has a face that looks a little bit human. That's really very misleading, but very intelligent, very capable people can still be taken in because that's what we humans do.
1: Yes, for sure. Those are really important questions uh, for us to ask uh, and uh, hopefully answer. So I was wondering what would be your wishing to have robot that we don't maybe have yet? Well, short of R2-D2 because it's cute. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, well, having had um, my my father died recently, had dementia before he died, Um, a robot that would act as an assistant to someone who was caring for somebody in their own home Not a carer robot, but an Mm -hmm. assistant, which would, because most carers looking after people with dementia, often their partners or their children, um, often have trouble even getting out of the house. So a a carer's assistant, which would, you could say, keep an eye on my loved one while I nip around the corner and just get a breath of fresh air. That would help you carry things, that would remind you where you would put things, that would help you when you're feeling harassed. Um, that would be quite a useful application. Non-trivial, okay? It's not something you're going to see tomorrow. But I'd love to see that because I think that would really help people in very stressful situations who are caring for people in their own homes.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with Ruth. Um, my aunt has just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I totally agree with Ruth with Bibi. Would be amazing to have such a robot in our in our um, care homes and if us at home like living with us why not and another few that I would like robots to be uh, more useful would be uh, of um, getting um, using less animals for tests so the new robotics example that I just said um, we can try to use robots to stop or even um, decrease the number of animals that are used in research, for for instance, for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's and other disease, neuro disorders. So by using the robots, we could try to use less animals. That's one of my, one of my uh, dreams as well.
1: Those are great examples. Yeah, I would love to have those robots. And it really shows how robots can provide solutions, hopefully, in the near future. All right, so we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what you're currently working on and what will be your next project?
2: So I've been working on a project to see if a robot can help adults with autism. These are high-functioning adults but who are massively unemployed because of their problems with interpreting social signals between people. Uh, We started looking to see whether... A robot could help someone with autism to better understand the social signals from people around them. Along the way, though, we realized that actually we could use a robot to try and train managers of people with autism to understand the problems that people with autism actually have, as if they were from a different culture. So my next project, if I ever get funding for it, would be a robot that helps managers to understand the problems that adults with autism have in processing social signals so that they can adapt their management style and become more effective. So that's what I'd like to do next.
0: And In my case, um, uh, we have an ongoing project on uh, new robotics, which is trying to create um, a model of the Parkinson's disease in terms of uh, trying to model the regions of the brain where the Parkinson's disease Um, is detected and uh, how we could use this uh, artificial uh, model of the brain to embed that in a robot so that we could better understand disease to inform new therapies and of course like i mentioned to use less animals when you're trying to do investigations on even um, um, uh, treatments that you try to do so every time they do treatments for this disease they have to um, induce Parkinson's in animals. Uh, I don't know if you know, but animals don't have Parkinson's. So what we do, we induce Parkinson's in animals. So it's, it's a really sad process. And I feel disgusted that you're talking about it. So uh, we are trying to find this, uh, this model, this artificial brain model that could inform the new therapies without using so many animals. And of course, um, like Ruth said, understanding our brain is such a long way to go. Um, neuroscientists still don't know how our brain works. Uh, we keep reading uh, papers from neuroscientists and uh, at the end of the papers, so we still don't know how the brain works. We have hints on how it works. And that's why we have to, to create our models based on these uh, findings, which are not so clear, but uh, we can't stop. We need to keep trying. Another area that uh, really uh, fascinates me is our, uh, the human memory. So like I said, again, neuroscientists still don't know how our memory works, but uh, we are trying to create models of the memory based on what we know so far. And maybe one day we could we could use this model to create uh, better interactive robots.
1: Excellent. Those sounds really fascinating projects. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Well, Amazon uh, or other
2: good booksellers. Uh, The book comes out on September the 21st, but uh, you can pre-order it now. Um, Both of us are also searchable by name on what's called Google Scholar, for those people who use Google. And our profiles there, or indeed at our university, Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, um, obviously will take you to our publications if you're interested in reading more of our research work.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you, both of you for joining me today. It has been really insightful and reassuring discussion on, on how we can live with robots.
0: Thank you very much, Galina. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks very much.